Okay, says says we're live. All right, let's see here. We have no gym tonight, so oh, let me get rid of these. Pat, oh yeah, you're fine. Let me get rid of that. Let me get rid of that. Don't let anybody sit there. Just in case somebody comes in. Let's see here. Sorry about that. Let's see. We've got uh, Psalm 119, and today we're going to go into verse. Uh, we're going to go to verse. Uh, whoops, I'm going the wrong way, Charlie. Okay, we're going to go to Psalm 119, verse 25. It says there, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. All right, that's some good stuff there. And then we got a couple prayer requests. Let's see here. Is that going? It is. No Sergio, so. Okay, let's see here. We got uh, the list of people that uh, have sent in requests for family and friends that don't know Jesus. And I got that right here. And we'll just include them in our prayer. And we also have Lisa Bunker. She uh, asked for prayers for her father, Robert. They found a mass on his liver, and he is also not saved. And uh, Lisa is in a uh, care facility. She has, I think it's, what is it, uh, lupus? Is that something like that? And uh, so add her into our prayers as well. She's a very nice lady, and uh, she suffers with her own afflictions. But she's praying, asking for prayer for her father. And then Aram asked for prayers for his well-being. And Mr. Magnuson has had some troubles over the past week, and he was discharged from the hospital today. But that doesn't mean he's okay. It means that he needs continued prayers. Do we want to pray for Mr. Magnuson? And then my boss at 7-Eleven, Peggy, had a heart attack this past week. And so she uh, like to add her into the prayers. She uh, is a very sweet lady, and uh, she's discharged as of yesterday. So uh, she'll be resting for a while. She had her heart attack, fell over, and landed on her back and destroyed the, you know, just really hurt herself. And, uh, yeah, tough job for her. And then Jude has asked for prayer for a job. She's still looking for one, and so we'll add that in. And then Hidako uh, had something happen about a week ago, and she is fine. And I want to praise the Lord and thank the Lord for that because that was a little scary. But uh, here we go. We'll go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've uh, seen these particular prayer requests, and there are certainly others that... Uh, are uh, out there. Uh, Darla comes to mind. She's still struggling with some operations that she's gone through. And uh, Lord, you know the people and their troubles and the trials that are out there. So we would ask that uh, if there's anything that we overlooked, that you would add that in, searching out our hearts and minds. And also uh, the people we've mentioned and the people that need Jesus, we would certainly lift them up to you, that you would uh, uh, make things happen in their lives that might direct them to calling on him in whatever way it is. And uh, uh, we certainly feel that way about the lost, is that whatever is necessary, whatever your will is, that uh, we would have that uh, be done. And Lord, we thank you for this, and we praise you, and we uh, exalt you in Jesus' name. And I see that uh, I pushed the wrong button, didn't I? So Sergio took care of it. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you. I pushed the wrong button. What's that? Sure. When we pray. Yep. Does God really care how many people know we're praying in this situation? Because if you have 10 million people praying for you versus five Paul people. speaks of the prayers of the many. And so, yes, the more prayers, he does listen. Absolutely. And uh, he hears all prayers of believers. Uh, people ask, do, does he hear the prayers of non-believers? And my answer would be no, he does not. Because your sins have separated from your God, so he cannot hear you. But there is a prayer of a non-believer he will hear, and that is the prayer for salvation okay other than that god is under no obligation to listen to or hear any prayer of a non-believer uh it's wasted time to go into a it's also contradictory to the uh pictures of the old testament but to go to a interfaith prayer meeting you're wasting your time the lord isn't listening to those prayers and you know interdenominational prayer meeting if that's important to you 
fine, as long as they're, say, believers and they're not off on some kooky tangent. Uh, but yeah, he does, Paul speaks specifically about the prayers of the many. So, Where is um, no, but uh, I can get it after class if you'll remind me. And uh, uh, so there you go with that. Anyway, good question. Good question. I do believe that the Lord hears prayers, but it's the same thing as salvation. You know, people say we don't have free will. And if we did, then, you know, God knowing in advance excludes our free will. No, it doesn't. It just means that he's factored it in. And if we don't ask Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he's under no obligation to forgive us. We have to actually do what the Bible says. And it's the same thing with prayer. He knows the prayers that are going to be made, and he responds to them, even though he knows in advance what they are going to be. A prayer that isn't said is something that was never factored into his omnipotence or omniscience. So, yeah, good question there. Um, we got the Bible. Thank you, Sergio. I'm sorry if uh, the beginning of the class was a little bit uh, hard to hear. That's because I didn't push the right button again. I've got five buttons to push, and it gets a little difficult for my limited-sized brain. So uh, uh, I'm glad that Sergio was there to correct that error. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we are in verse 5. And we'll go ahead and read that here. It says, For indeed... When we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. All right, here's some commentary. As you read this letter from Paul, there is a journey that he refers to and then digresses from to insert key theology and personal notes. He noted this first in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, where he said this. He said in 1, 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant brethren of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And then after this, he diverted to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, where he said, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia." He now resumes this journey here with the words, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia. So you have to follow through the epistle to understand where you're at in Paul's mind. He has a story to tell, but he also has doctrine to relay and heartfelt notes of petition and encouragement to fill in as he does. There in Macedonia, he says that our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. He and his traveling com companions were constantly harassed at every turn. And because of this, he says that outside were conflicts, inside were fears. It needs to be remembered here that italicized words are inserted for our clarity, but these words of Paul are more emphatic. Outside conflicts, inside fears. It is an explanation of our bodies had no rest. They faced trouble on every side, and they were fraught with turmoil in the very fiber of their being, fearing their safety as they traveled. Such was the life of an apostle, but the message of Christ impelled them forward. And I don't see any contradiction when he says, have no fear, etc., things like that. When he says this, it's obviously human nature which is taking over, and he's saying there are these things that uh, uh, conflict with their human nature, and they have to rely the more on the Lord. So anyway, with that uh, life application, Paul explains the plight of an apostle in this particular verse. In the verses to come, he will show that the Lord was with them and he was directing them. So let us each be confident that the Lord is also with us in our trials. He has a plan for us and he is working it out in a marvelous way, even though it may not seem like it, like it at times. Be confident that it is. So there you go with that, and let's see here. We are now on uh, seven six. Is that right? Yes, seven six. I got to make a note here. I'm kind of getting started on an uneven keel this afternoon. Let's see here. Seven six. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There is an emphasis which is unfortunately lacking in many English translations in this particular verse. God is put in an emphatic position at the end of the verse in the Greek. In other words, it would say, the comforter of the humble comforted us, even God. That's the pulpit commentary's translation. Paul is taking what occurred in his own experience, and he is assigning it, as it were, to being an attribute of God. 
It would be like someone finding a large nugget of gold on the side of the road and exclaiming, the giver of grace has lavished his grace upon us, even God. Paul's acknowledgement of God's comfort upon the downcast is uttered because of the coming of Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, which said, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 13, it said, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So the 2 Corinthians 13, Paul had noted that his spirit lacked any rest because of not finding Titus. Now, five chapters later, he reintroduces the narrative to explain to the Corinthians the immense comfort he found at the arrival of Titus. The reason for it will be explained in the verses ahead, but it centers on the message that he brought concerning those in Corinth. Paul has skillfully and masterfully organized this letter in a way which would bring a slowly emerging display of his personal feelings for the Corinthians and his desire for them to be in a like-minded harmony as a father to a son. Now, one of the things before we read our life application on this verse is that when you're reading the book of Acts or some of Paul's epistles, you'll say, I went here and I didn't find this guy. And so I went here and I, you got to wonder because they didn't have cell phones back then. They didn't have, uh, you know, how did he know to go from here to here to find this guy that he was supposed to meet here? I mean, we're talking about an ocean in between them or maybe a walk of 10 days or something. He says, well, you know, it'd be like I'm in uh, Sarasota and I can't find Rick. And so I'm going to walk up to Tampa and I'll find him up there. What would even prompt somebody to do that? But that's what he does. And maybe they had message boards where people, you know, I have no idea how it worked back then, but there must have been some way of saying, this guy isn't here. He left a note at this tavern or at this, you know, on this board or something. And how else do you find somebody in the middle of a town of 50, 60, 100,000 people, you know, and then you go to another town to look for the same guy and you don't give any information. It's like they took it as an axiom that, oh, that makes sense. But to me, it makes no sense at all. Anyway, life application. When you are downcast, where is it that you will turn? If the Bible reveals the heart of God for his children, then turn there. For times of true disheartenment, try the 42nd Psalm. That's where I send people when they send me an email and they say they're really, really downcast and they're just miserable. And uh, Doug one time heard me say that and that he made that painting over there out of the 42nd Psalm for the church because he knows that's one of the Psalms I just I cling to it my own time, so we'll go there really quickly, just so you can hear the words of it. I know I read it in a Bible class not too long ago, but it is really a beautiful song, psalm. And uh, so let's see here. Psalm 42 says, and Psalm 43 follows suit with it. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul for so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mitzar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy, as with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Good stuff there. Okay, verse 7-7. And not only by his coming, meaning Titus, who we just mentioned, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul just noted that he and those with him were comforted in the coming of Titus. 
Now, building on that, he says that it was not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. They were certainly relieved to finally meet up with Titus, but when they met up, great news about the status of Corinth came with him. The words indicate that when Titus was there, meaning in Corinth, he was greatly encouraged over the effect that Paul's words from his previous epistle had brought out in them. Remember, he in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he was very direct with them. They're a dysfunctional church. They're uh, just bad in doctrine. They're bad in what they're doing. There's divisiveness. There's immorality being conducted in the church. And Paul was very direct with them. And by the end of the epistle, he's winding things up and he's weaving it together in a loving manner. But, you know, it, they could have heard the beginning of that epistle and they could have said, I am out of here. I don't want to hear anymore and I'm not going to listen to Paul at all. But they listened through the whole epistle. He got to the chapter on love. He explained what, you know, loving, being a loving Christian was the highest of, uh, uh, you know, um, ideals for the Christian. And then he finished up the epistle and they were comforted by that. And Titus bringing that message was not one of offense, but it was one of joy. And that's what he found out. And that's what he's relaying to them right there. So for Paul and those with him, the words relayed by Titus told us of your earnest desire, meaning it told them of, uh, told us of your, the Corinthians, earnest desire. This would be referring to the desire for them to make the changes necessary to be right with the Lord and working together as a harmonious congregation. Your mourning, his words, your mourning, indicates that the desired change was sincere. The word Paul uses for mourning is odurmos. It is found only here and in Matthew 2, verse 18, and it indicates an actual audible lamentation. They literally broke down and wept at how their behavior had been the source of Paul's needed letter of discipline. Now think of that. Think of a church here in America that has gone so far astray that they have sexual immorality in it. You know, we've got countless churches like that. And somebody sends them a letter and says, you are doing wrong in these things and you need to correct them. And they're very direct and, and straightforward in their letter. And the church actually starts weeping out loud over it. The chances of that are very slim in most churches today, but it worked with this church and it, I'm sure it has had its effect with some churches in the past. But it takes the heart of the people geared towards Christ and not towards the world for that to come about. They may love Jesus, and they may just not have good doctrine, and so they're allowing things that shouldn't be happening. And that seems to be the case with the church here in Corinth. They loved the Lord, they understood the message that Paul had given them, but they had just fallen away, and they had gotten into divisiveness, they'd gotten into that sexual immorality. And when this epistle was read to them, they literally broke down and audibly wept. Okay, from there he notes, your zeal for me. The words were taken as they should have been. Instead of a commanding bully, he had written fatherly tenderness. It was taken in that context and the zeal for those in Corinth to come in line with his fatherly advice was well received. In the hearing of all of this good news, he, as he says, rejoiced even more. His happiness at the coming of Titus was only bolstered by the news he brought. You know, he's happy to find Titus, however he did it, they hooked up somehow. He's very excited about that, and then he gets the news that Titus is conveying. Your letter had exactly the effect that you had hoped it had. The people mourned, and they turned away from what they were doing. How happy is Paul? Life application. <clears throat> the Bible says that the feet of those who bring good news are beautiful. There you go. Good feet. Let us keep our feet looking as lovely as possible at all times. All right. Verse 7-8. Let's see here. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though not only for a while. Is that right? Though only for a while. Sorry, but I inserted not with my own brain. Though only for a while. Okay, Paul now refers to the previous letter that he had sent to them by saying, For even if I made you sorry with my letter... The King James Version erringly states, with a letter. There is an article in front of letter, and therefore either the letter or my letter is appropriate here. It isn't referring to any letter, but to the specific letter which brought about their sadness. In having sent it, sorrow came upon the recipients. Despite this, Paul could not feel regret over the sternness of the words he used. However, he does qualify his thought by noting that I did regret it. 
At first, he realized that his words had been taken as a point of grief and anxiety by those at Corinth, and he felt a bit remorseful about his comments. But when he saw the temporary nature of their remorse and the quick turning about in their conduct, he realized that no true regret was necessary. And if you're like me and you get down on somebody for something, you might go to bed and stew over it. You know, oh, did I say the right thing? Was I too harsh? And that's what Paul is doing right here. Um, I had a dog that ran one, two, three houses down a couple days ago when the tide was real low because of the cold front. And he's down there and there is a dog owned by my, used to be my neighbor Chuck, but now they're so far away because they built a hospital in between us. This giant house, this 7,000 square foot house. I can't see Chuck anymore unless I see him on the road or if the bay is real low. But anyway, um, uh, my dog, little Chihuahua, this big, went down to Chuck's house and they have a dog called Big Dog. And there's a reason why it's called Big Dog, because this thing is massive. And my little dog is over there fighting with this giant thing, and the big dog looks scared. Well, I had to give my dog a little bit of a spanking. And all night I thought, I felt so bad about that. But how do you discipline a dog unless he knows he's done wrong? And so I wasn't real hard, and it wasn't a lot, but, you know, it was, it was to make the point that you've done wrong. And with a chihuahua, you need to make the point, because they are very, very hard-headed dogs. But anyway, all night long I'm thinking, did I, did I? You know, was I wrong? Should I just have scolded him? Should I put him in the cage and not fed him for three days? Or what do you do? I'm kidding about the feeding, okay? Gotta feed your dog. But this is what Paul went through with this congregation. Should I not have said that in my letter? Should I, you know? But if you think back on it, everything that Paul wrote to them in that letter is now included in the pages of the Bible. So whether he realized it or not, it was inspired by God. And so it was exactly what was needed. It was exactly what was necessary. And now we have that as a model for what we need to do when a church is out of line, when they're doing this or that or one thing or another. We can go right to that example and we can show them. And in there, you know, are countless examples in 1 Corinthians of eternal salvation and all kinds of other doctrines, the Bema Seat of Christ, you know, the, the judgment seat that we're going to go stand in front of for Christ. All of these things are in there. And if they had not been disorderly in their conduct, we wouldn't have had that information. So God, knowing that, used a disorderly church in order to give us doctrine, which we have now been able to use for 2,000 years, waiting on the return of Christ. Nothing is lacking in God's word, even if we think we might have done something wrong. I'm talking about the apostles. Nothing was done wrong. It was exactly as it should have been. All right, there you go with that. So um, uh, he saw the temporary nature of their remorse and the quick turning about their conduct. He realized that no true regret was necessary. This is explained clearly in his words, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Paul had no intention of bringing permanent unhappiness to the Corinthians. Instead, he intended to bring about true correction leading to restoration. When it became evident that this had happened, instead of regret, he certainly felt relief. We got a life application there. Sometimes a stern approach is necessary to wake someone or even a group of people up from their slumber. In many parts of the Bible, this is exactly what the Lord does for his people. He sends them sternness in order for them to turn back to him. When the intended correction is realized, there can only be joy all around. Let me see if I can find an example from that of that right from the Old Testament here. This will take just a second, but it came to mind while I was reading that. How does God do that? Uh, let me go here. And this will take just a sec. B-I-B-E-T-A-T-E. Okay, I'll read you an account where God did exactly that. How was he stern? And Because, you know, I say something and you might think, well, he just made that up. No. Um, let's see here. Yeah, Judges 2.1. I should have known that right off the top of my head. We'll go there really quickly. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Judges. Where are you, Charlie? Judges chapter 2 and then verse 1. Here he did exactly this for him. Then the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. He's doing exactly what Paul did. I'm now going to chastise you for you not paying attention. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel 
the people lifted up their voices and wept. Exactly what Paul says they did in 2 Corinthians that we're right now in that verse. Uh, they lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bochim means weeping. So exactly what was intended by the Lord, get them to be broken in their spirits so that they break down and weep, and then they will turn back to the Lord. Okay, so there you go. It's exactly the same example. Just came to mind, and I'm glad it did because it's what Paul has done with the Corinthians right here. So uh, let's see here, uh, seven nine, seven nine. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. Think of the people back in Israel at the time, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Paul now introduces repentance of the Corinthians into his thoughts. Um, let's see here. Unfortunately, the uh, King James Version, again, makes the entire thought kind of convoluted by using the term repent in both the previous verse and in this one. I'll read how they put it. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I didn't repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Then he says here, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow to you sorrowed to repentance for ye were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing however and here's why i have a problem with that and all translations do this to some extent you just have to find the one that doesn't do it and uses different words um, two different words are used in verses eight and nine the repent of verse eight is more appropriately regret now in verse nine it is correctly rendered repentance this might seem like hair splitting, but Paul is making a point concerning emotions and doctrine, which needs to be carefully worded. And this is why, like when we went through, especially um, Joshua, I'm sorry, um, uh, Joseph, when he was down in Egypt and he was the leader of Egypt and the brothers came down and uh, they translate, most, almost all translations translate the words grain, 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 grain. And there's two different words that are being used. Okay, one is shever and one is bar. And God is making a point to us in those unique words, but they translate them grain. And so when you're reading the Bible, you would never, ever get what God is trying to say. But once you realize that shever means broke, okay, it's, it's the breaking of the grain, the kernel, okay, then bar is purified. And it's making a theological point of what is coming in Christ. So you go back and you follow the different words. And when they're translated the same, doesn't matter what translation you're talking about. When they do that, they take the same word within a couple of verses and they translate the same or two different, I'm sorry, the same word two different ways, it damages the intent of what that person is saying. Because when Peter says one word here in uh, 2 Peter 1, 3, and then he says it again in 2 Peter 1, 5, and it's the same word, but it's translated differently, you don't know that and you're getting a wrong impression because he's thinking that one word both times, okay? Unless the context obviously calls for it. And normally it won't. The context will call for it being the same. I mean, there sometimes we'll use uh, two words to make one point or one word to make two points. But that is would be the exception when we're looking at these particular issues. So uh, the best thing to do when you're looking at verses like this is to read lots of versions, think on them. And we got one guy in the uh, church on uh, Sunday, and he sits here and he has a uh, parallel Bible with four versions of the Bible open at all times. And after the sermon, it is not uncommon for him to come up and you'll say, why is there a difference between these two here? Or he'll say, these three say this and this one says this. And so he's being very precise and he wants to really know these things. He really wants to know why there is a difference. And that is how it's going to help you. If you don't know that there's a difference in these translations, you're just stuck reading one and you don't know what's going on. And that's why when Jim is here, he'll read the NIV or you know, uh, you might read the NASB, both based on one set of, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, uh, originals. And then uh, I'll, I will have the uh, New King James Version here, which is based on a sec separate set of them. The texts are not the same sometimes. There'll be a couple of variations in there. And you find out why those variations are in there and which is correct and why, or which is wrong and why. Anyway, there you go with that. So um, uh, he begins here... Uh, the thought, now I rejoice. This is verse 7, 9. Now I rejoice. His heart has been made to flow with joy because of the situation at hand. The letter had made the Corinthians become sorrowful and 
to regret their actions and now to ensure that they understand that he wasn't unhappy about their sorrow, but rather the regret which the sorrow led to, he adds in the words, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. In other words, he wasn't rejoicing over the fact that he made them sorry, all a bunch of moaners over there and in tears, and he's laughing at them. That is not what he's doing. He's happy that their sorrow led to repentance. Okay, in regretting their actions, they had in turn repented of them. This is the intent of discipline and words of correction, and in this case, it had worked. To show this, he says, for you were made sorrow in a godly manner. There are different reasons for sorrow. In the case of what has occurred, their sorrow is based on a right response to proper chastisement. All we need to think of is our own children. If we punish them for stealing, if they, we punish them for stealing, they will be sorrowful. If they repent of their stealing and steal no longer, then they have united their regret with true repentance. This is the same line of thought that Paul conveys here. The parents are not happy about the child's sorrow, but they are happy about what the sorrow has led to. Paul finishes this thought with that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. What he is saying is that no true harm came to the Corinthians by Paul's letter of correction. Rather than loss, it is the intent of him and the other apostles that they receive gain, not suffer loss. When correction is properly, properly acted upon, then gain is the result. Such is the case now with the Corinthians. Let me make a note right here. And life application on this particular verse. It can be difficult to punish those around us that we love, but it is at times necessary. Children need right direction and even stern correction to keep them from straying into even worse conditions. Those in the church will likewise need correction when they stray from what is acceptable to the Lord as is revealed in his word. When a pastor or group of a church members has determined correction is necessary, be ready to evaluate the situation and support the decision if it is truly in line with the precepts that are laid out in the Bible. Always go to the Bible, not to some book of discipline or any crazy thing like that. The Bible is where we get our, our terms for right and wrong, and then from there we apply them appropriately. And, you know, as I said there, it's difficult to punish those around us that we love. Well, it's difficult to punish those that we have an affiliation with, or it's difficult to punish those that may be our friends. And I was watching something with Lee over here yesterday, and we got a guy that did nothing wrong, and he was accused wrongly. He was framed by the police up in uh, some place. I can't remember. It's somewhere up in Wisconsin. Yeah, there's a and little town up there. He made national news, and he went to jail for 18 years. And uh, yeah, for something he didn't do, and they knew he didn't do it. And finally, it was proved that he was wrong. And then when he came out, there was a suit against the people that intentionally put him in jail. And all of a sudden, he's back in jail for the rest of his life for murder, which is very suspect because the people that were being sued were the ones that were liable for a very large amount of money. And they weren't allowed to go to the crime scene. And they did. And nothing was done about it. So anyway, the point is that it is very hard to to uh, discipline or punish those that we might like or that we, we might love or that we might have an affiliation with. This guy was unliked in the county, but he did nothing wrong. And there was a person that was involved with uh, one of the people in the police department that was offended by something. And so they're trying to, uh, you know, make that go away by punishing this guy. Okay. And the point I'm making is that what is the term justice is blind. It's to be blind. And I was thinking about it, how right it would be. And of course, it would never happen in this nation because somebody would say it's unjust, but exactly the opposite is true. How right it would be if every person that went into a courtroom was to be put in a white bag. Nothing that was harmful, but was in just a white bag. You couldn't see if they were black. You couldn't see if they were white. You couldn't see if they were a friend. You couldn't see if they were a daughter or a son. They're just in a bag, and they've been accused of this crime, and here's the evidence laid out against them. That would be, in my opinion, true blind justice. And, of course, like I said, they'd say, well, that's racist, or that's this, or that's that. When the black person is brought into the court is the one that is looked down on by maybe a white supremacist, or the white guy is hated because he has white privilege by a black judge. It is unfair. And so we need to, when we punish people, 
regardless of who they are, whether they're the person that gives the most in the church or whether the person that vacuums the floor on Thursday afternoon, or I'm looking at Burke now, um, uh, whoever it is, if they are doing something that is not right, we are to hold them accountable without regard to who they are, as it says in uh, the Old Testament, or not to see their face, okay? Anyway, the point is made, and uh, Paul did that. He, without any bias or anything, he simply said, these things are wrong. I expect these things to be corrected, and the people changed their minds about those things. So there you go with that. Uh, 710, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Many English translations deviate from the Greek in the structure of this verse. There is no adverb in it. Using the word godly causes the verse to become cumbersome and unnatural. The New Living Translation makes it much easier to understand. I'm not uh, recommending the New Living Translation. I'm just saying that they make it understandable here. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. The reason why I qualify that about the NLT is because it's kind of a paraphrase. It's not, you know, it's a translation, but it's, it's not really a literal translation, but they got this right, okay? The godly sorrow, then, that Paul is speaking of is a sorrow that explains verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> Paul made them sorry with his letter, but there was a good reason for it. When they regretted of their ways and then repented, the purpose was realized. This is exactly what Paul is now explaining to them. Through the sorrow that God would want in them, they repented of their actions. It is a repentance that would not be regretted because it was in line with what God intended for them in the first place. In a non-believer, such sorrow will lead towards salvation. In a believer, it will lead towards restoration and renewed fraternity between God and his wayward child. For the most part, Paul was writing his letter to saved believers at Corinth. But how could a non-believer come to know Christ with no correct example to follow? Therefore, this salvation isn't speaking of those who were already saved, but of those who still needed to be saved. Those who repent will not regret of their repentance because it will lead to salvation. Now, as I said in the sermon on uh, Sunday, I think it was this past, yeah, it was this past week, is that the word repent, all it means is to change your mind. Okay, a person cannot logically repent of something that they have done wrong if they don't know that they're doing wrong. If they know they're a sinner and there's 4,000 sins that they've committed, they can't repent of them. That's not something that is even logically possible because they haven't been presented with what that means. All they can know is that I am a sinner, I need a Savior, and I call on Jesus. And it says that you believe, you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That is it. Okay, repentance in the idea of actual change in your mind can only happen towards salvation in somebody that has rejected Christ and now is repenting of that decision. They are changing their mind about having rejected Christ. They come to Christ and ask him to forgive their sins, to be their savior from sin, and they are saved. Okay, so that's the idea of repentance here. Whatever is known by a person that is causing them to be away from God that is to be repented of. But other things that they don't know that they're offending God. I mean, there's how many commandments that a person needs to be given to say, this is what you need to do to be right with God. Nobody gives them that and says, you need to go clean yourself up and then come to Christ and be saved. You come to Christ, he saves you, and then you're presented with scripture while you hopefully are attending church and your Bible study and you're learning about how to turn from the things that are displeasing to God. That is an after the fact, not a before the fact issue with God. Okay, so the boxes always come logically with God. Everything is put into its own separate box. We'll have some boxes we'll talk about this week as well. Okay, which is once, oh, I've got that backwards. That's my dyslexia. Once saved, always saved, or not so. Okay, I think I missed a word or something. But anyway, um, uh, that's the, in the uh, title of the sermon this coming week. Everything about salvation will be in a box. Are you saved? If you're saved, are you saved forever, etc.? And if you start mixing the boxes together or cutting up, you know, I'm going to take this line out of this box, I'm going to move it over here, you come up with crazy theology. Everything has to fit into what is logical because as we saw last week, God's, uh, what he decrees is unconditional. It is forever and it will never change. It is immutable. 
okay? He doesn't think one thing here and think one thing here. And so if you are taking different thoughts and putting them together, you are not coming up with the way that God thinks. Everything that he decrees is everlasting, okay? And we need to remember that about God. And once we get that right, then the boxes will fit together much, much, much better. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, Non-believer, it must be remembered, remembered <coughs> excuse me, that Salvation, though salvation is based on faith in what Christ did, not on works, one cannot be saved merely by repenting from sin. That's what I was just talking about. If a drunk gives up drinking and yet has no faith in Christ, he will never be saved. We cannot use this verse as a verse which says repentance leads to salvation in and of itself. Instead, it is the grace of Christ which saves the repentance of a sin may lead to faith in him or it may not. Either way, it is only by the grace through faith that one is saved. On the other hand, there is a sorrow of the world that he also writes about. There are many types of sorrows in the natural world. If we are, as a matter of fact, this is what I did when I did um, last week's sermon, is I took these verses and I put them into the sermon because I'd already typed them. So you're going to hear this again from last Sunday. There are many types of sorrows in the natural world. If we're sorry over losing a bank account full of money, that doesn't lead us to God. Instead, it leads to frustration and bitterness. If we're sorry over losing our girlfriend, that hasn't helped us in our spiritual life at all. Instead, instead, it simply is a sorrow which is natural and of this world. Or let's go back and revisit the drunk from the previous paragraph. If he is sorry for being a drunk because it led him to lose his job, he may give up drinking and get his job back. In this, he may become proud and say, look at what I have done. This sorrow then only produced death in him. Ultimately, though, such sorrow, through such sorrow, there can only be regret. In the end, it produces nothing concerning salvation, but it continues to produce death in the unbeliever. Now, as I was telling Lee here before we started today, it's so nice. I didn't want to do these doctrine sermons. My friend talked me into it after about five or six or seven years of needling me, and so I did them. And then Lee says, well, I appreciate you, that you did them, and they've helped me, and blah, 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 and we're talking about that. And I said, the good thing about this is somebody will say something, and I know that I've typed a commentary on that particular issue. And I just, you know, how many commentaries are there in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? I mean, there's probably 200. There's 130, 140 verses. Yeah, probably 250 or so verses in there. I can't remember where those commentaries are. And so if they ask me when I'm standing there in front of them, I say, I'll get back to you. Okay, I can't, I'm just not going to make something up off the top of my head. I have to sit down and think about these things. And so I'll go home and I'll do a search in here and it takes me a while to find what I had done. But now that I've done the doctrine sermons, if somebody says, well, what about this? All I need to do is just send them a link and say, here, watch this sermon. It's done. I don't ever need to do it again. So every time I do something in a commentary or something, if I know exactly where it is, oh, it's so nice because it saves all that time of going through this and I, because, like I said, I don't want to off the top of my head make something up and then find out what I said was incorrect. I want to be precise. And so I make sure that when I give somebody a response in an email, I've already done it or it's something that I've taken the time to answer. So I'm very happy, actually, of having done these doctrine sermons because now if somebody asks about eternal salvation, I just send them the link. Somebody asked me today about the timing of the rapture. She said, you know, how do we know that it's not mid-trib? Hey, I've got that on video. I just sent her a link. It took me two seconds to get. Oh, it's so nice. You don't have to go through that all over again. They can either agree or disagree with the video, but I don't have to address it again. Woohoo! Okay, so let's see here. Life application. Paul's words concerning the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience are directed towards things which are contrary to his, meaning God's, holy character and which separate us from him. And so we can see that not all sorrow is bad. Those who refuse to show sorrow over their sin show that they have no care or regard for their creator. Only when we have sorrow for our actions can we turn from them and be saved from them. And you may already be saved, so being saved from those sins means that you're just not being caught up in them anymore. Somebody can be saved and continue to drink for years and, you know, finally he says, this is just killing me. I need to stop this. And so he turns from that finally, whatever. Whatever it is, it can lead to salvation or it can be a turning from something while being saved. Because if anybody here says that they are free from sin at this point, we should probably have a talk. Okay, that's just my words to you. Um, let's see here, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven, which I work at six days a week. And I just... First John chapter 1 would help that there. First John chapter 1 what? If we say we've sinned, 
Oh, that's right. We tell, we tell a lie. That's right. And he's talking to believers there. That's absolutely right. Okay, the good thing is, though, that we are not imputed sin. Even if we sin, even if we do something wrong, God is not counting men's sins against them, 2 Corinthians 5.19, which we did a few weeks ago. And therefore, yes, it may be sinful, but it is not being imputed. And therefore, well, another argument for eternal salvation, which will probably be in Sunday sermon, I know it is, um, is that if you're not imputed sin, and sin is what results in death, then you can never die again, right? And if you can't die again, then obviously your salvation is eternal. One plus one will always equal two when you properly line it out. If you're not imputed sin and sin is what separates you from God, then you can't be separated from God again, okay? Salvation by default is eternal, okay? But anyway, um, 7-11, okay, um, we're in 7-11 once again. Peggy, if you think of her, say a prayer for her. She had a heart attack this week and she's a wonderful boss. So uh, just if Peggy comes to your mind, say a prayer for her. Um, let's see here, 7-11 says, for observed, observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence have produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourself yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul's words in this verse show the fulfillment of the words of the previous verse in the believers at Corinth. That said, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. And sure enough, Paul confirms that this has been evidenced in them, as is seen in the words, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. After this introductory statement, he lists the things which he had heard about from Titus concerning them. He begins with, what diligence it produced in you. The word he uses indicates speed or haste. They quickly made every effort to correct those things which were wrong and to restore the congregation to a doctrinally sound one. What clearing of yourselves, that's Paul's next words, is the Greek word apologia. It is a logical defense of the actions they have taken. The, words, the word is used especially in a court of law when clearing oneself, oneself of charges. In the case of the Corinthians, they took necessary action and have made their defense based on the actions that they took. And then he goes on. What indignation? It, you, he uses a word here, agonakatesis, which is found only here in the New Testament. The indignation certainly wasn't against Paul or his words of correction, and they were probably not against the offender directly either. Rather, Based on Paul's words, their indignation arose against the sin which existed. Once it was brought to their eyes, they realized the seriousness of it. He goes on, what fear? Wouldn't, that would not be connected to condemnation. Paul writes elsewhere that there is now no condemnation for the believer in Christ. However, for the sake of the church, there was fear. It is what any congregant should feel as See, as he sees sin entering into the body. As Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In the book of Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks of the consequences of a church when it departs from sound doctrine. The congregation in Corinth feared, and so they made the necessary corrections. Everybody got that? The fear was not one of, oh, we're going to lose our salvation. It's not one of, oh boy, God is going to you know blow us all up. That wasn't it. They were fearing of losing their lampstand, if anything. Okay, then Paul goes on. He says, what vehement desire. That indicates their desire to clear their name and to be shown right in a right standing before the Lord and in the eyes of their beloved apostle Paul. He was as a father in the faith to them, and his words touched at their very heart. Paul is their faithful friend, and they worked towards receiving his approval of their correct doctrine. And then he goes on, what zeal. That must certainly be referring to their desire to honor the Lord and to bring him the glory he is due. With the sin which had affected their congregation, they realized this was not possible. And so they zealously worked to get the matter corrected. Paul goes on, he says, what vindication? The King James Version here renders it, what revenge? This is either an anachronism or it is simply a mistranslation. I don't know which. Revenge is not the idea here, but rather exoneration. They had worked to be exonerated of the offense which existed in their congregation. 
Paul's words show that they had, in fact, accomplished this. And then he sums up with the thought, In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. The Corinthians had worked diligently to clear their names individually and collectively so that they would be a doctrinally sound congregation, living in accord with the admonishments and exhortations of their beloved brother Paul. They did this because they knew that he carried with him the authority of their beloved Lord and Savior Jesus. And life application here, Jesus speaks strong words of warning to the seven churches that he addresses in Revelation. In those words of warning are the corrections they need in order to be in a right relationship with him. Take time to read those seven letters and to see if your own congregation falls short in any precept mentioned there. If so, be sure to bring it to the attention of the elders or the pastor. He loves us enough to warn us in advance of what is necessary to be in a right standing with him. Let us love him enough to be obedient to his words. You know, he says things in there that are, uh, you got churches that are lots of money and they're secure and they got everything they need and they're just kind of falling away from him and that. And they've got some of them that are holding on faithfully and, you know, but they got this little shortcoming over here or there. Every church is going to have to evaluate itself from time to time because if they don't, there's going to be a problem. You know, it's just the way of human nature. You get a new pastor, and he's got a different way of doing things. And I'll give you a perfect example. The church I grew up in out on Siesta Key it wasn't gospel-oriented at all. I mean, it was the Episcopal Church, and you went in, and you did kind of like catholic stuff. You sat down, you stood up at a certain time, you said these words at this time. And it was just a bunch of hocus-pocus. But at the same time, it was a conservative congregation. They, you know, never said anything depraved. They never said anything you know, vulgar or condoned anything that would be considered that way. I just remember that. It was just one of these churches that was conservative. My dad was very conservative, and it, I'm talking about fiscally and morally. And so eventually, we're, I'm in church, and they got in a new, uh, whatever they call him, priest or rector or whatever, and uh, the new organist is gay. And, you know, people just kind of like, oh, he's only an organist. He's not doing anything in the church, so it must be okay. And, you know, the guy's like, we need to be accepting of him. And he's not, you know, changing anybody's doctrine. And that was the very beginning that I remember of that church, which is now so completely vulgar in what they do and what they support that it's almost beyond imagination. I mean, abortion is just like the great thing. You know, homosexual ordination of bishops and priests is just standard common behavior in the Episcopal Church now. But it all starts with a little thing that somebody didn't take the time to say, you know, this is wrong. Uh, I had a neighbor that lived right next to me, Jewish guy, didn't believe in anything. He was just, you know, just a Jewish guy and very nice guy. But one day I was talking to him and, you know, because he'd always play the sax at night, he was practicing for the band he was in. And uh, he played other instruments as well. But, uh, you know, I, I told him one day, I said, man, it's so nice to hear you playing that at night. It just kind of puts me to sleep. And and uh, he says, oh, yeah. He said, I used to play in a band at a Pentecostal church. And I thought, what? They've got this guy in here. He was never evangelized. Nobody ever told him about Jesus. And they've got him. They're, they're paying him to play in a band in the church. And I think it's just, it seems dirty. It just seems wrong that you've got a band that doesn't know Jesus that's singing all these Jesus songs. And, you know, people are just clapping or whatever they're doing. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. If you're not doing something out of a love for Christ, What's the point in doing it at all? But that was just me. I mean, I just remember having that funny thought go through my head about that. But uh, we need to be obedient to his words. We need to evangelize people, and they shouldn't be in church positions until they know the Lord. I mean, that's just, that seems like one plus one ought to equal two, but apparently it doesn't. Anyway, 712. Let's see here. What time is it? Uh, I've got a few more minutes. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you and the sight of God might appear to you. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians contains references to a situation of sexual immorality which was so distasteful that it is not even named among the Gentiles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In other words, it was something that even Gentiles would consider perverse. From his words to them in that chapter, he makes it clear that his main intent was to cure the entire congregation of reveling in what occurred. In verse 6, he said, your glorying is not good. It was an overall rebuke to the church. 
With that in mind, he begins with, therefore. He is referring to the entire chapter so far as a basis for his words now. This is true even from verse 1, which said, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. For the perfecting of such holiness, along with everything else that he has spoken of here, he says, Although I write to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who has done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong. He is clear that the letter was not meant as a rant against the offender or a defense for the offended, although these issues would be handled properly if the congregation took the necessary action that he gave. Rather, the overall intent of his words was that our care, this is Paul, our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. His concern was for the overall congregation and his care of them in the sight of God. Going back and reading 1 Corinthians 5, this is wholly evident. For him to say to them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump implies that he was concerned about the entire lump of dough, not just one piece of bread broken off from the lump. Paul's care for the entire body is what was evident, and so this is what he is explaining to them now. Life application, misunderstandings arise because people often don't take the time to thoroughly investigate a matter. When this happens, care needs to be taken in order to resolve the misunderstanding. Don't be overexcited when responding to others in a matter of such difficulty. Instead, think through your response in the life of Christian fraternity. All right, 7.13. Therefore, we have become, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. In the previous verse, Paul said that the intent of his first letter to the Corinthians was so that care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He had intended to demonstrate his care for them in order to give them soundness and comfort in their congregation. When Titus arrived, his words told them that the letter had its intended effect. Because of this, Paul was in turn comforted in the comfort that they had received. Until hearing from Titus, he was certainly anxious about how the letter was received. The good news was that instead of great battle of words beginning between the two parties, there was comfort. Further, Titus was so overjoyed at how things turned out that Paul says, we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus. The reason for this is that, as Paul says, his spirit has been refreshed by you all. The word for has been refreshed is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Thus, some older translations miss the fullness of the effect it had on him when they translate it, was refreshed. Titus wasn't just comforted at the time of his visit, but he remained so even until his coming to Paul. There was a continuance in his state, which was then transferred to Paul and his associates. Paul and everyone with him were overjoyed because things had worked out in a positive light. His words to them now are given to show that he was convinced that there was peace on all sides and that no harm had come to their relationship. Life application? Written letters and emails can often be misrepresented because emotions do not carry through those mediums. When there is any chance of such misperceptions, either extra wording or follow-up telephone call may be needed to ensure that the things are taken in the proper light. Words can truly hurt, so be attentive to sentence structure and the specific words that you use in your communications. You know, some people like to type with just capitals. That's their preference, and that's just how they type. But that is like shouting at somebody. If you've ever seen an email that's all capitals, it's like you're being shouted at. And so you have to take that into consideration. If that is their style, you have to overlook it. If it's not, you have to wonder, why is this person yelling at me? Because it's not the way they normally type. Okay? But you can't get emotions from an email. Maybe their shift button is broken, too. And so it has to be all in capitals. You have no idea. Emotions do not convey through letters or emails very well, unless they're explicitly stated. You know, I love you so much and blah, blah, blah. If you don't state that, you may be saying something in one way, and it's taken in a completely different way. Okay, so you just got to be careful with that. Verse 714. Um, let's see here. Tom, would you like to do us a favor tonight? Do you have five minutes? Thank you. Okay, 714. From this verse, it is apparent that Paul had boasted in advance that the Corinthians would be receptive to his letter 
and that things would turn out well in the end. It gives the impression that Titus may have been reticent to be a messenger heading into the lion's den. But Paul reassured him that all would be fine, boasting of the Corinthians' ability to correct that which was faulty and to work together in a harmonious manner in the process. And in his boastings to Titus, the result was that I am not ashamed. However, this rendering doesn't really give the correct sense of the tense. It should rather say, I was not ashamed. That's Charles Ellicott. In other words, the New King James Version makes it sound like Paul is currently not ashamed of his boasting. That makes no real sense because the event is past. Paul was proven to be correct in his boasting and there was and was not put to shame by having things turn out in a manner differently than he had told Titus they would be. As a confirmation of this, he continues with, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. Paul's letter of correction was based on that which was truthful. The things that needed to be addressed were correct and they were right. When the Corinthians read the letter, they took it in that light and worked to correct their deficiencies as appropriate. And so just as Paul's letter was in truth, Titus found that the boasting Paul made concerning the Corinthians was also true. Paul was vindicated in both ways by the words he spoke. The words of this verse take us all the way back to his words of chapter 1. In verses 15 through 18, Paul defended his actions of not coming back to the Corinthians as he had originally planned. And because of this, there was the impression that he took the situation lightly. However, his words to them here show that this was not the case. The fact that he boasted to Titus in advance of how things would turn out showed that those in Corinth were not only right at the center of Paul's attention, but that they were in a positive and not in a negative way. So we have a life application here. Paul looked at the Corinthian church with the very best intentions and in the belief that they would do the right thing. In this, he was vindicated in his boasting of them. Although we shouldn't let ourselves get duped by others, it is right that we give the benefit of the doubt whenever possible. When we do, especially when it is done in the presence of others who can substantiate later what they have said, we will then have a firm base on which to work with when dealing with those we have trusted. This can only increase the harmony between the two parties in future dealings. Hey, what you got there, Tom? Looks pretty good. Looks pretty good. Oh, I know. They're jam-packed over there. And, and you know what? They opened at 4.30. We were there at 4.31. There were already 12 people sitting in line. Hey, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, last time uh, Ryan Jackson bought us pizza, and he sent enough for two times. So there you go. We'll thank Ryan Jackson up in Canada for that. We love you, Ryan. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be enjoying pizza in a couple minutes. We're going to finish this chapter, though, because we only got two more verses, and then we'll finish. Okay, 7.15 says, And his affections are greater for you, as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Because of his visit to the Corinthians and their response to that visit, Titus's affections towards them grew in the most tender and heartfelt way. There was a true bond forged, which included a deep and stirring attachment to them. The word for affections here is the same one that he used in verse 6:12 concerning the affections of the Corinthians towards Paul and his associates. Paul is showing that Titus was truly stirred in his love for them during their encounter. After saying this, he gives them the reason for it. Titus, probably sitting there with Paul and explaining all that occurred, surely related how he remembered as he says, the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him, meaning Titus. The term fear and trembling is a phrase Paul uses several times to convey the deepest sort of feelings. The exact same term is used by him in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, Ephesians 6 5, and in Philippians 2 verse 12. Instead of a belligerent attitude, Titus had been welcomed with respect reverence, and a desire to correct the deficiencies that were highlighted by Paul. Life application. When reading the Bible, certain phrases are often repeated. Paul's words, fear and trembling, in this verse can be more fully understood and appreciated by comparing the same phrase elsewhere. So don't be in a hurry to rush through your Bible studies, but instead take time to refer to other passages or phrases which can help you to understand the meaning and intent of what is being relayed. All right, now we got 716, and we're going to be done for the day, and we're going to have some pizza. All right, 716 says, 
Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Okay, before I give my analysis of this verse, just so I don't forget when we get done, uh, last week, uh, Wade did a great uh, thing for Facebook, telling people be sure to show up at uh, Bible study tonight at 5 o'clock at the Superior Word, and he did a Star Trek one. All the people on the Enterprise were watching us. We were having Bible class, and uh, anyway, today he did one that was just, I didn't think he could tap, top last week, but he may have done it. He had a President Trump sitting at his desk in the Oval Office, a guard over there, and there's a screen with the superior word Bible study going on. So it's very good. So at least we now know what President Trump does on Thursday nights. Okay, he's there with us. So thank you, Wade. That was very wonderful. Um, anyway, if you look really closely through his uh, uh, pictures that he does for the Bible study, you look really closely and somewhere you'll find Sergio and Rhoda in there somewhere. So if you want to go to Facebook and look at that photo, look at it and see if you can find Sergio and Rhoda in there. They're in there. Okay, they're in the Oval Office. Uh, 7.16, Paul sums up the thoughts of this chapter with words of relief. Titus had been sent, good things had been relayed back to Paul, and harmony was reestablished between the two parties. And because of this, he says that I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Greek here literally is telling us that Paul intends that in everything I am of good courage concerning, or literally in the case of, you, as contrasted with my former doubts concerning you. That is Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary on that. Paul doubted if those in Corinth would return to the proper and sound path, but his doubts were ended and he was heartily encouraged once again through the events described in this chapter. Now that this matter is behind him, he will continue on with the epistle in another direction, which is chapter 8, coming soon to a Bible study near you. Life application, reading the words of Paul helps us to solidify how we are to conduct our lives in a proper New Testament context. His words are prescriptive and they are authoritative, but even in his writings are descriptive passages which show us how his theology was expressed towards others. These actually help us to get a better grounding in his prescriptive words as well. So be sure to study Paul for proper doctrine. There you go. Verse 13 shows he's a southerner. He says y'all. Y'all? Y'all? Yeah, he is. A, Paul was probably a southerner. Yeah, I mean, he was on the southern end of Turkey, so that's, that's true. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to meet here today and uh, to uh, share in your word. And we certainly thank you for Ryan, who has given us a couple weeks of pizza. And we thank you that uh, our friend Lee is here to visit us for that uh, event. And we also thank you that uh, yesterday I had the honor and the privilege and the pleasure of uh, baptizing Brother Lee over in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so we're thankful for that, Lord. And we want to also lift up those that we mentioned at the beginning of this service today. And uh, that you would be there in an ever-present way and in a way that they know that you're there. Uh, just real to them so that they have the comfort which is all comfort in their lives and lord we do thank you for these things we ask that you bless the food and we just praise you in jesus name amen all right let's go ahead and back this baby up here yeah, it looks like you dropped your hand. can't believe i didn't